Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. You know, I'm so excited to be here this morning. I, I, get, I get amped when I come to church. I pray all week. I'm, I'm engaged with the Lord. I get up in the morning at 5. I pray over the services, and I get amped. And as I was coming in at the 9 o'clock, a few people kind of stopped me, and they, they saw just there was this joy, and I was just really excited. And they started just sitting and talking to me, and they were sharing a little bit about what's going on in their lives. And then they started asking me questions, and, and they started bringing up uh, my motorcycle race that I got to go out to. You guys have heard about this so many times. And they said, they said are, are you still excited about the motorcycle race? You're excited about church, but does that still... And I said, you know what's crazy? Like, I'm still hyped about it. I like sit in my office and I'm like daydreaming about being out on the sand and just racing these things. I mean, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. And I'll tell you a quick story because it's, it's kind of funny. It's, it's a little embarrassing, but it's funny at the same time. As I was building this bike, I, t- I asked my wife if I could build another motorcycle. And she said yes, because she's amazing. And the Lord is all over her. So thank God. So I asked, can I build it? And she said, yeah. And I said, you know what? My buddy, Nick, he builds motors. I'm going to send him the motors. He's going to build it. And as I get little parts, the transmission and things together, I'm going to send it to Nick and he'll get the bike together out in Jersey. And then when I get out there, I'll tune it all in and do these things. And as I'm talking to Nick about the things that we're going to do with this motor, he, he built the motor so darn big that when I saw the bike in person, I literally started getting scared. I'm not even joking. I looked at it. I said, honey, you don't know what this thing looks like in person. You have, it is a beast. And it's got like a dual manifold with two carburetors. And it sticks so far out, you can't get to the brake because it's like up against your leg. So I, I couldn't get to the brake. And then, and then Nick comes to me and my buddy Brian's there. And he says, kick the bike over. Start the bike. Because these are old kickstart bikes. You got to kick it. And the bike was so big. The motor was so big that I had to kick with like both feet up in the air. Like, whoa, like try to get this thing to move. And I went to go kick it the first time. And it didn't move. I'm just standing in the air up on the pedal. Like I, I'm like, it didn't move. And I was like, I don't know if I can even get this thing started. So I look at my friend Brian. He's like 200 pounds. He's 6'5". And I said, Brian, could you kick it for me? And he gets on the bike and he goes to kick it. And the motor's so big. The flywheels are so big. The bore is so big that the motor is pushing against him kicking it that he actually snaps the pedal in half. He snaps the metal right in half right in front of me. And I was like, well, like I've never seen that happen. I've never seen that in my whole life. I've never seen that happen. So I have to change the pedal. I have to literally like, we got to weld it, put it back on the bike. So I go and I take it to the races and I race it twice the first day. And after two times, it was enough. I literally came back. I didn't race it to the next day. I I waited to the next day to race it again. Cause it was just, it was so fast. I didn't even get out of second gear and I beat two guys. I like literally second gear. I didn't even get into third. And when I got to the end, I was like crying because I was so exhilarated. Like, oh my gosh, this, this is nuts. Right. But it was so big that a buddy who was there, a guy that I actually just met, he was a really sweet dude, Steve. He said, listen, why don't you race my 45, which is like half the size of my motorcycle. It's another motorcycle, but small. He says, why don't you race this in between your races? Because I can see you're going to die. Like, like, oh, that's what he said. So he gives me the bike, and I'm excited. I'm on this little bike. It's super low to the ground. I can actually kick it, so I can start it if it stalls, which is great, right? And I bring it up to the line. And you got to understand, when you go to the line, you got a guy next to you, and you're standing, and you're, you're right there by the ocean, and there's thousands of people that are watching you, just in bleachers. 
And I'm thinking in my mind, like, I don't have the fastest bike anymore. So like, I got to go all out. Like, I'm like, I'm freaking out about it. And as I'm sitting there and I'm getting ready, I look down and the name of the bike is written across the gas tanks right in front of me. And you know what the name of the bike was? This was the name of the bike. White Devil. Literally. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, white devil. And I'm thinking in my mind, pastors know what it is to be under spiritual attack. We get it. So you don't open doors to the enemy anywhere in your life. You don't play games. And I'm thinking in my mind, like, white devil. I'm riding the white devil. Like a pastor's riding the white devil. And I'm like, this isn't going to work. So this, this, was, this is what I thought. And this is how crazy your pastor is. This is what I thought. And I'm not even joking. I thought if I drive it close to the tide and I get the water to splash up on it, and I pray in tongues, I'll baptize the bike, I'll sanctify it, and then I'll ride it into victory. That literally what went through my mind. I said, this is how I'm going to do it. <sighs> Unfortunately, when I pulled the throttle, it went straight into the jersey barriers over on the other side, and I couldn't get control, so I decided that plan was out of it. But I rode it anyways. I had a blast. And you know what was amazing? God opened up all these doors to be able to share the gospel, not just with the white devil, because they heard me praying in tongues, but I got to share it with his owner and with all the other people around, and it was just fun. It was just awesome. So thank you for your prayers again. I thought you might want to hear just a funny little story of how I process things <laughs> in the midst of life. So... Anyways, all right, with all that said, let's get into the word. John chapter 19, I thirst. I'm going to read 17, verse 17 through 30, and then we'll get into it together. All right, here we go. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was also to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers and these things uh, did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now verse 28 again, let me read it to you because this is where we're going to focus. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. I thirst. You know, when I go through a season in life 
where I'll actually catch myself complaining about a situation or a circumstance or I'm feeling ungrateful about how life is turning out, I'll take time and I'll go back over the course of a few days and I'll reread this specific passage of scripture and I'll consider it. I'll read about the death of Jesus on the cross. And there's something about really thinking about Jesus' death, what it was for him and the implications that it actually has on my life that has the ability to kind of break through the grumbling, break through the complaining, break through the fretting that I'm constantly seeming to fall into. All right. I had a friend say this to me one time. He said, Michael, if you're looking for a sign that God loves you and that he's with you, you're going through a time where it just seems distant and you're looking for a sign. He said, this. He said don't look in the present. Don't look for something in the future. He said, look back. Look back and look at the passion of Christ. Look at his crucifixion. And as I was reading this passage in this text of scripture again, I was going through it because you can imagine the type of week I was having that I'm back here again, but I'm going through it. Something jumped out at me and it came in a new light that I never even considered before. The Bible says this, that after everything was finished, after everything was complete, Jesus then cries out, listen to this, I thirst. Now that, I want you to get it, is an amazing statement. And you might be thinking, well, what's so amazing about that? You're just thirsty. Well, well, think about it just a little bit more deeply. Think about everything that Jesus had been through up to this point. Right? The scripture says that they blindfolded him. They brought him before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. They brought him before the mob and the crowds of people. And what did they do? They mocked him. They spit on him. They blasphemed him. And then they said this, and they struck him with their fists. He's blindfolded. And I don't know if you're the son of God, you're able to, with the blindfold, like be able to see in the spiritual whether or not somebody's throwing a, a punch or not. But can you imagine not knowing where the punch is coming or when it's happened, just boom, straight across the cheek, boom, straight across the mouth, boom, straight across the nose. And it's breaking things and you're bleeding and it's popping out a tooth and you have a, a bruised eye, whatever it might be. And then after they're done doing all of that, they're spinning on him and they're mocking him and they're punching him. They come and they take him, they put him in the dungeon, which, which I actually went to go see. I went to Israel, I went to Caiaphas' house and I saw the dungeon, I saw the prison. And they take him out and they bring him before Pontius Pilate the next day. And what does Pontius Pilate say? He says, scourge him with the cat of nine tails. In other words, take the whip, and you guys all know it, that has shards of glass and shards of bone. And I want you to go give him 39 lashes straight across the back where the glass and the bone would stick into his skin and rip large portions, just rip them out until he is bleeding. I mean bleeding all the way down his calves, all the way down his feet, all over the ground until his back was so ripped up, all the muscle, all the tendons, that it looked like a piece of meat. And then as Jesus is trying to compose himself, as he's trying to get up through that type of beating, the soldiers then come and they bring a crown of thorns. And they take the crown of thorns, and these weren't little thorns. We're talking inch, two inch thorns, and they put it on his head and they press it into his temples. They press it into his brow until blood is flowing down the front of his face. And if that wasn't bad enough, they go and grab a rod and they begin to beat him over the head, over and over and over again. And I imagine Jesus just on the ground, taking one slug after another, right on the crown of thorns, which is pushing into his brains and the excruciating pain that he was feeling. And then... They bring to him the cross and they throw it on his back and they make him carry it up the hill where all the splinters, all the rough wood is literally cutting into his open wounds. 
he falls down under the pain of it. And then they take him all the way to the brow. They bring him up on the hill. They stretch him across the, 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 the cross. They take his palms. They take his feet with all the nerve endings, with all the tendons. This is the most painful place to cut on your whole body. And they drive nails straight through them. And then they pick him up on the cross where he's doing his best to contort his body with all the pain, the thorns, the open back, rubbing against the wood, his hands that are ripping open, his feet that literally, all the pain, he's trying to contort his body so that he can continue to breathe, to finish taking all the wrath of God to complete the redemption of humanity as he is in the process of suffocating. And up to this point, Jesus never once says a word about his physical suffering. After enduring all of that, he comes to the point where he's about to die and now he opens his mouth and says, I thirst. Anyone else find that strange? See, the fact that Jesus didn't say a single thing about any of his physical suffering up to this point of his passion, up to this point of his crucifixion, is showing us that when Jesus says the word, I thirst, he's not just saying, look at what I am enduring. That's not what he's doing. But there is something deeper here that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible is trying to get us to understand. In fact, Jesus is showing us two things when he says that word, I thirst. In fact, let me put them up on the screen. Number one, Jesus is revealing, and I want you to get this, how hideous and evil sin is. And number two, Jesus is revealing what is at the center of our hearts. Now, I'm not going to get to both of these this week. I'm only going to hit the first one, and I want to talk about how wicked, how evil sin is. And I want you to think about that just for a second, because what does the Bible say? It says, when Jesus knew that everything was accomplished, that everything was finished, then he cried out, I thirst, which means that Jesus, up to this point, had endured all the mental all the physical, all the spiritual, all the emotional suffering and torment needed to be able to redeem humanity. And when he uses those words, I thirst, what they're really doing is they're explaining, I want you to get this, a spiritual and a physical dehydration. In other words, what Jesus is saying, ready? I got nothing left. Every ounce of moisture, every ounce of life, Every ounce of sustenance has been squeezed out of me through what I have endured through the cross. And Jesus was enduring two different types of suffering that were crushing him at the exact same time on both ends. Okay, I'll put it up here again. The first suffering was his physical suffering, okay? His physical sufferings, they were sharp. They were everywhere, and they were continual. And then on top of that, he had the inward sufferings that were going on as well. In fact, let's talk about the physical sufferings just for a second. Let's just, let's think a little bit more deeply. Let's actually use our minds as Christians just for a second, right? Do you realize, I want you to get this, that different people have different tolerances when it comes to pain. Or you can say it this way. 
Some people are just a little bit more sensitive or in tune with pain and how it affects their bodies uh, differently from other people. For example, my wife. Honey, I'm going to embarrass you just a little bit. I know you're here at the 11. I, I was hoping you wouldn't be here so I could just share it without getting caught. But you are here. When my wife gets sick and she gets like the stomach flu or she gets a bug or something happens, it could be horrific in our house. I mean, horrific. I mean, she'll wake me up. There's vomit. There's, she's on the, the bathroom floor. She's got body aches. She's got headaches. She's nauseous, right? She, she has the chills. She's got fevers. All that stuff is going on. I mean, she is afflicted. But then the baby cries. And I'll tell you what, she puts all the pain aside somehow, and she goes and takes care of that baby. And when I say baby, you have to understand, I'm talking about me, because we get sick together. She, she, comes, she comes and takes care of me, is what's actually going on. Not the little baby, she's fine, she's in the crib, she's asleep, right? But if I so much as like stub my toe in the middle of the night on one of the kids' toys as I'm going downstairs and trying to get another Coke at 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever it is, I stub my toe, I mean, that will put me out of commission. That will put me into bed for like a week and I'll sit there with the agonies of my little pinky. No joke. And in fact, when we had our three kids, when Beth had each one of our children and we were in the labor ward, let me tell you, there was like a worship service that was going on, but we weren't worshiping because of the miracle of birth. I was worshiping and dancing because I was saying to God, God, thank you that I don't fall under this end of the curse because, because this is nuts. I'm watching her and I'm thinking, this is crazy. This is absolutely insane. And I'm sitting there saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because if it was me, the first contraction, like halfway through it, I literally would be falling to the floor and just giving up the ghost. I just, I would just die from the pain. And she went through it. And she knows the story. The nurse came in. She said, do you want an epidural? I said, yeah, we want two. One for her, one for me. I want what she's getting. See, for some reason, Beth's body doesn't react to pain the same way my body reacts to pain, right? Now think about this for a second. Jesus' body was miraculously formed for the sole purpose of experiencing pain and suffering. I know theologically that messes us all up, but think about that. That is the truth. He came into this world to do what? To die, to be the lamb that would be slain. He was given a body for a purpose, and that purpose was ultimately to go through the passion. That purpose was ultimately to go through the crucifixion. And he didn't have a sin nature. He didn't know what it was to sin. He didn't even know what it was to be sick. I mean, he was so pure that his body had never gone through the experiences of being dull to pain. Jesus, I want you to get this, because he was so pure, because he had a certain temperament that no other man on the face of the planet ever had, had a higher threshold of experiencing pain than any of us have ever experienced in our lives. And not only did he experience the full measure of pain on the cross through his cru cru crucifixion, but he experienced it everywhere. Every part of him. There wasn't a piece or a member of his body that was not in agony. He had the crown of thorns on his head, like we said, right? His back was still ripped open as he was hanging there on the cross, bloodied all to get out. His hands and his feet were slowly ripping open every single second, moment by moment, as he was hanging there under the weight of his own body. 
He was contorted and stretched in ways like we could never have imagined. And you think that was bad enough, but then every one of his five senses was under assault and under affliction. His eyesight was afflicted by the robbers and the murderers that were crucified with him on either side. His hearing was afflicted through the crowds of people who sat there blaspheming him minute by minute, hour by hour. Can you imagine going through that type of pain, suffering with that type of physical affliction, and then listening to people who are trying to get your attention to tell you how bad you really are? I'll tell you. And then, and then having to compose yourself on the cross and not come down and slap them upside the head. His taste was afflicted from the bitterness of the gall and the vinegar that they gave him. His smell was suffering, it was afflicted through the stench of filthy Golgotha. There wasn't one part of Jesus' senses, his body, his physical being that was not in the process of absolute torment. And then get this, and there was no breaks, no relief. There wasn't a moment where he could call a timeout and say, can I sleep this off and we'll take this up tomorrow. No, no, no. He went through that type of pain, that type of physical torture from the moment his passion actually begun to the, de- to the moment that he died on the cross. He went through all of it. But there was the inward suffering too. Do you realize that when Jesus said those words, I thirst, that he was in the process of taking on the full wrath of God? The wrath of God, listen to me, without any mixture. There was not one drop of love, not one drop of comfort mixed in with the wrath. Even today, when we read Romans chapter 1 and we hear about the wrath of God being revealed on the the men and women, the disobedience who will not repent of their sins, they still have the common graces of God. They still have the testimony of the church and the people and the gospel that are reaching out to them and telling about God's forgiveness, God's love, God's grace. Jesus didn't have any of that. He was completely cut off from all of his father's love, from all of his father's comfort. He turned his back on his son. The son who literally lived in eternity in the bosom of the father who never knew what it was like to see his father angry, to see his father disappointed, to see his father literally with a holy jealousy. He never experienced that. He never went through that. And now that's what he's going through on the cross. He went through absolute pure wrath. And not just pure wrath, but all of God's wrath. Jesus drank the wrath of God down to its last drop for your sin and my sin. Charles Spurgeon used to say it like this. It was as if the father had a sword in his hand and took it out of the sheath. And he just started stabbing his son on the cross one time after another after another right into the soul of the man. And he stabbed so much that his whole arm, his bicep, his forearm began to shake from exhaustion. And he finally gave up. He went limp and the sword fell out of his hand. And the father trying to catch his breath begins to say, that's it. There's nothing left. I have no more anger. I have no more hatred. I have no more vengeance. Every last bit of it has been poured out on my son. And then think about this. Not only was all of that bad, 
But Jesus was actually experiencing all that physical torment and that inward suffering at the exact same time. You know, I can deal with a little bit of pain, bodily pain, affliction, when I know that my heart is right with God. And on the flip side, I could deal with God's discipline and I could deal with his correction when he's dealing with something deep inside of me when my body is doing well and it's healthy. But you get me to a place where I'm physically afflicted and at the same exact time, I am in a wilderness with the Lord where I don't know where he is. I'm telling you, that is unbearable. I've gone through seasons like that. I know what that is. And Jesus was experiencing that at a level that I can't even begin to describe with words. So what does it all mean? What, what does it all reveal? Well, this is what I want to get to, and I want you to hear me. And I say it in love, but this is the truth. The fact that Jesus was crushed to this extent for our sins should cause our hearts to see how wicked and evil sin really is. And it should create in us a propensity to put to death the flesh and the sin in our life through trusting in the promises of God. See, when you really understand what those words mean, I thirst, when the Holy Spirit begins to open up your eyes to the agony that Jesus was going through, the fact that there was nothing left, the fact that his soul was dry from the wrath of his father, the fact that his body was dehydrated from the physical agonies, and that all of this was happening at the exact same time, and this was the price that needed to be paid for my sin. The question then becomes, as Christians... How can we continue to live in sin any longer? See, we've been talking about the new covenant over the last couple weeks. And we said the real object of the new covenant was God wanting to open up a new way where he'd be legally, contractually bound to continue conforming each one of his children more and more into the image of his son, no matter how well we perform as Christians. Meaning he was giving a, a, a word, a bond, a covenantal agreement, not with us, we come in through the terms and the conditions, but with his son Jesus. And he's saying, I'll never stop going after sin in their life. I'll never stop convicting them and putting my hand on it. I'll never stop going after the selfishness in their own hearts. I swear that if you die on this cross and you give to me that perfect personal perpetual obedience, that I'll continue fighting until I rid them of all of this and I cause it to come to a death. I'll give them my power. I'll give them my presence. I'll give them my power. I'll give them my promise. I'll give them everything that they're going to need to be able to find victory over these things. And one of the greatest promises of the new covenant is that God says, I'll put a heart of flesh inside of you. And then, not only am I going to give you a new heart, but I'm going to put my spirit in you. And between the new heart of flesh that can be moved by my spirit and the spirit of God, I'll give you a spiritual sight so that you can see what your sin and the sin of the world did to my son on the cross. And when you see it, when it's been revealed to you, when the Holy Spirit has anointed you to understand this as part of my provision through this new covenant, it will work in you a fear of the Lord, which Proverbs says is just a hatred for sin, where when you make a mistake, when you fail, when you get tempted and you give in, you wake up and you realize, oh my gosh, what has I done? There's a grieving in your heart over sin. 
There's something inside you that says, I don't want to live like that anymore. You see it for what it is. You see the evilness. You see the disgust. And there's something inside. And any true born-again Christian knows exactly what I am talking about. You can't live in it anymore. You got to crucify it. You got to put it to death. See, the law, the Ten Commandments can show you what sin is. But it's the sufferings of Jesus, his agonies on the cross, that show us what sin does. See, you can know sin through the Ten Commandments, and that's good. But you don't know what it really does until you see what he actually went through. And then it begins to actually hit home. Now, with all that said, I'm not talking about Christians who struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. But here's the thing. As Christians, we don't make treaties with sin. See, when the nation of Israel came into the promised land, the Bible makes it very clear that they were going to have to fight against pagan nations in order to inherit the land. And the Bible says that they didn't inherit all the land the first day, the first week, or the first month. They had to continue fighting day in and day out. And the enemies were still in the land. But there's a difference between the enemies being in the land and you continuing to fight against them and the enemies being in the land and you make a treaty with them and you say you can live here and we will intermarry. You have our kids, we'll have your kids, and we'll make ourselves one. There's a difference between the two. See, as Christians, we still deal with selfishness. We still deal with vanity. We still deal with sexual sin. There's immorality in all of us. There's lust in all of us. We deal with pride. We deal with bitterness. We deal with gossiping. We deal with lying. I, I got to be honest. We all go through times where we're tempted and we fall into some of these traps or we do some of these things. But every single day we get back up and we take the covenant. We take the promises of God and through our confession, through our repentance, through calling it what it is and then stretching ourselves out on what God said he would do through his spirit inside of us, we continue on in the fight until we finally actually find the victory. What we do not do is say you could remain in my life because you give me a little bit of pleasure sometimes and I kind of like it once in a while. No, 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 no. When you see what Jesus actually went through that pleasure just isn't worth it anymore when you see it when you get it you say I can't live even if it gives me a little bit of pleasure knowing what it did to him can I be honest We don't preach on this stuff in the church anymore. We don't. We don't talk about Jesus' sufferings. We don't talk about his agonies. We don't talk about the destruction of sin. We don't even want to use words like blood. This would offend some churches. A cross. We want to hide all that. We want to stuff all that. You want to know why? Because when we really begin to look at it honestly and the Holy Spirit begins to take it and really opens it up to us, we naturally begin to feel shame and guilt because we see what our sin actually did to him. And we live in a culture that is so afraid of dealing with shame or being uncomfortable with shame and we have all these safe spaces that it's now bled into the church. 
Instead of fighting through the shame and finding our identity with Christ and suffering through it until we found the victory of it, what we do is say, I don't want to deal with that. And we stuff it behind a closed door and we don't talk about it. We don't discuss it. We don't have any theological dis disputes. We don't do anything with it. We hide from it with everything in us. And you know what's happening in the church? And this is the truth. Because we're not dealing with it and because we're not actually looking very honestly with what our sin actually did to Jesus on the cross. We're not putting it right before our face. We're beginning to get hardened to sin. We're becoming comfortable with it. We're saying that, ah, this isn't that big of a deal. Because all we ever hear every single week is our identity, our love, the grace of God. All true. All needed. All right. All part of the gospel. There are sermons that have to be preached on that. There are truth that have to be propagated on that. But there's another part of the equation that we have to see as well. And when you make it unbalanced, you begin to naturally, all of us do it, begin to become compromised in our lives. We start saying, well, it's not that big of a deal if I lie a little bit at work. My boss brings me into the office and I got to tell them that I hit my numbers when I didn't really hit my numbers. That's not that big of a deal. God understands. He loves me. Right? It's not that big of a deal that we come to church as the, the happy married couple. We put on the show. We smile. We laugh. But then when we get home and my wife does something wrong, I take off her head. I mean, I lose it. I mean, I go after her. God still loves me. So when I come to church, I just lift my hands. I got the show. I look good. We look good. And that's what matters. It's just our appearance. God, God understands that I'm weak. Right? It's not that big of a deal anymore. It's not that big of a deal if I look at pornography two, three times a week. Doesn't matter if I'm sleeping around with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or I'm playing around with sex even before I'm married. I know that's how God created it, but God's got to understand I have needs and there's temptations and there's issues. So, so it's not that big of a deal if I go down to the bars on Tejon Street and I pick somebody up and I play around and I come back, but I worship God on Sunday. It's not that big of a deal. A little bit of it is not that God understands. And all the time we're blind to what it actually did to him on the cross. We don't see, my goodness, the price that was actually paid. How can I do that? How can I live in that? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. See, the Lord put on my heart this morning... So I was praying and I was trying to figure out how to finish this word. What do you want to do, God? What do you want to do? And I felt as I was in a place of prayer, the Lord began to say to me, there's people in this congregation, including myself, in areas of my own life where I've grown hard towards sin. Where I don't see what it really is. And God is saying, but I'm coming with my new covenant. I'm coming with my legally binding contractual agreement with my son that I would give you a new heart and a new spiritual vision, that I would put in you my fear to hate this thing. But the only way the hardness begins to break, the only way the covenant promises begin to become real is when we make the choice to start being in agreement with God, where we repent of it, where we confess it, where we call it what it actually is. God, it's not just a little white lie. It nailed you to a cross. God, it's not just a little pornography when I get itchy or I get there and I, I need something. God, that was the crown of thorns. That was the wrath of God. That was the sword of God that went through your soul. God, it's not just a little bit of a temper when I flip out 
when I, when I yell at my kids and when I act this way. No, 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 no. That was you carrying that cross up on the hill as it was ripping into your back as all those open wounds from the cat of nine tails, as you literally collapsed. You, the son of God, collapsed under the pain of it. God, it's not just a little bitterness in my heart where I think I have a right to be angry with somebody else in the body of Christ and not reconcile the issue, but to wait until we finally get to eternity where we could kind of like dance into heaven and think that it's all swept under the rug. No, God says, no, 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 no. That is an unforgiveness that Jesus had to take to the cross. That is an unforgiveness where he had to endure the full wrath of God for. And we have no rights, no matter what anybody has done to us after what he did to hold on to any of it. No rights. Stand with me, Springs Church. This is my altar call this morning. I make an honest altar call that's going to take a lot of boldness on all of our parts. But as we just read through John chapter 19 and we're just looking at what it was for Jesus to thirst, what was he really enduring? And God is beginning to come. He's beginning to put his finger on different things in our hearts, sins that we're compromising with, hardness that, that we're allowing, and we're pushing all that away. My altar call this morning is just an honest confession before God saying, God, I don't want this to harden. I want to deal with it. And if you're offering a new covenant today where you are saying that you will be legally bound to come and to give me a fear, give me a spiritual vision to see how wicked this sin really is, where it would literally begin to pull my finger grips off it, where I cannot lay it down in my own strength, then I'm coming to the altar to confess it. I'm coming to the altar to repent of it. I'm coming to the altar to come into agreement with what your word says and what my sin did to your son. Whether I feel like it or I don't, doesn't matter. And if you're in a place this morning where that's you, God is speaking, I'm gonna ask you, would you come forward? Would you come before God, not before me? And I wanna just pray for you. I wanna pray, I wanna lift you. And let me just say this, don't be afraid about what anybody thinks in this house. Because listen to me, you're gonna get the freedom today. You get the freedom. Don't worry about what anybody thinks, what anybody is going through. To be honest, every one of us have an area in our lives that's hard and compromised. And you come forward before the Lord as an honest confession to him this morning. And I want to pray. I want to lift you up. And I'm going to ask for those new covenant promises to become real in our lives. To see how wicked sin really is. So that we would flee and put it to death. God, I'm committing this time at the altar to you, Holy Spirit. As people are here, I'm just asking you talk to the Lord. You confess it. What, what is it he's putting his finger on? Confess it. Repent, saying, God, I'm going to call this what it is. This is sin. I'm going to call it. Can I, can I be on? I'm going to do an honest confession right here. I'm going to be honest with you. My wife needed to go to retreat last week, and the week before that, she went for a weekend to spend with her friends up in Denver. She left me with the kids for two weeks, and they were sick. And let me tell you something. There came a bitterness in my heart thinking, I'm the holy man of God. I got to get ready for Sunday mornings. And she left me with the kids. And the Holy Spirit convicted me saying, that attitude is not right because you are to lay down your life for your wife. If you want to be conformed into the image of Christ, you got to realize that you got to love her. You got to give her what she needs. And she needs you to take care of kids as she gets poured into today. 
And I began just to repent. I began to say, God, forgive me. I don't want to get hard and then try to pass things off on her that are really my issues. I don't want to get hard. I want to see how wicked this sin really is. I want to see what it really cost. And I want to hate it with everything in me. Confess it to the Lord this morning. God, we come confessing. God, we confess bitterness. We confess pride. There's some of us in this room, we can't hear anything from anybody. We can't be corrected. We confess pride. God, we confess trying to find our joy in our life and materialism and the things of this world. Man, do I got a problem with that. God, we confess it. We repent of it, God. And we say, Holy Spirit, come. Come over this place. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.